Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Dave Baxter, Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Rachel Winter, Associate Investment Director at Killican Company. Four months ago, investors were hit by the shock announcement that LF Woodford Equity Income Fund, run by Star, or maybe I should say former Star manager Neil Woodford, had been suspended from trading because it couldn't raise money fast enough to meet investor redemptions. The fund had been expected to reopen in December, but on Tuesday there was another, maybe final twist in the saga. Dave, you've been reporting on the events of the last few days as they have happened, and there have been quite a few. <laughs> so first of all, what is the latest on LF Woodford Equity Income? Hi, Leonora. Um, yeah, as you, uh, as you mentioned, there's really been a huge amount happening this week. All really kicks off on Tuesday. Um, so Link Fund Services, the uh, I suppose the kind of administrator of the fund, decided that they were going to um, essentially strip um, Neil Woodford from his uh, uh, investment responsibilities on equity income. Uh, and also they were going to um, wind the fund down, so sell off the assets and uh, return money to investors. Was this expected? No, I mean, people have now been pointing to perhaps some hints um, that this was going to go ahead. But, you know, the fund suspended back in June. Link was obliged to um, provide updates at least every 28 days. And in at least the first few of those updates, they uh, referred to this idea of uh, reopening the fund in early December. And they they said that was an achievable goal. But as I mentioned, there was in their last update in September, interestingly, they they didn't mention this. Okay, so why is Link winding up LF Woodford Equity Income Fund rather than allowing Neil Woodford to raise the money to reimburse investors and then reopen the fund? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So the idea was to reposition the fund, um, move away from, for example, illiquid assets and, uh, you know, then reopen and uh, trade as normal. They were hoping to be able to do that, as I said, uh, in December but now they feel like not enough progress has been made in uh, selling some of the fund's assets. And essentially, they've decided it's in the best interests of investors to simply wind it up and uh, give them their money back. When and how will the fund be wound up? So uh, the winding up is going to begin in January next year. And uh, Link have basically referred to kind of a series of investor payments. Um, so I suppose that all is still quite unclear. It all really depends on how quickly they can kind of sell assets. Uh, they've appointed a couple of different managers to sell off the different elements of the fund. Um, so you have the kind of listed, uh, more liquid, more easy to sell portion of the fund. And then you have the uh, unlisted and not very liquid listed part of the fund. Okay. And I mean, do um, investment analysts think this is a good outcome? It's really split opinion. Uh, there's a couple of conflicting arguments here. So on the one hand, some people are including, um, for example, the regulator, the FCA, have said, uh, you know, this is for the best because what you're doing is you're giving investors their money more quickly and you're essentially putting an end to this uh, quite protracted saga. But on the other side of the fence, uh, for example, um, Darius McDermott of uh, Chelsea Financial Services um, has argued that... Uh, this isn't the best decision. And really, perhaps you could have kept things on track and, uh, you know, gone for that December reopening. Rachel, do you think that the decision to close LF Woodford Equity Income is right? 
At this stage, I think it is. So I think it's a shame that we've got to this point that so much money has been lost. But at this stage, and because it's quite a unique situation where we've got such an incredibly well-known fund manager, such a famous fund, and the whole saga has just been in the press so much, I think were the fund to reopen in December, I think the vast majority of people would try to withdraw their money. And that would be very detrimental to the small number of people who would be left in the fund because Woodford or whoever the new manager of the new fund is would have to sell the majority of the contents anyway. That would push down the prices and that would harm the people remaining in the fund. So I do think the fairest outcome at this point for all investors is just to wind up the fund. I was just thinking more broadly about it. Um, What can investors learn from it? I mean, is there any way of telling if a fund is heading for trouble? I think with hindsight, this does seem quite obvious, but at the time, I don't think it really was that obvious. I think some lessons for investors are that perhaps it's not a good idea to invest in an open-ended fund that contains illiquid assets. So from now on, I probably wouldn't invest in an open-ended fund containing property or perhaps very small or unquoted investments. But I do think the main lessons here are for the regulator. So I do think the rules surrounding the amount of unquoted investments that can be held in a fund and where those investments that are quoted should be quoted, I I think those rules could be enforced much more strongly. And I do think that's an important lesson for the regulator to learn. Okay. And I believe the FCA is looking at this. You've written on that lately, Dave. So they've already released their mm. um, paper on uh, illiquid assets and open-ended funds, haven't they? But that was more kind of focused on the uh, the property funds. And that was slightly criticised because it was um, a lot of that focus was on funds that aren't governed by the uh, the usage regime, mm. which applies to a lot of open-ended. So now there is some further work going on. Um, for example, the FCA and the Bank of England are currently doing a joint investigation. So yeah, maybe that will shed some more, more light. I think it might do. And I think the issue with Woodford is that a lot of the quoted assets in the fund were actually quoted on incredibly illiquid stock exchanges. And I think that's mm. the aspect Thank that really Guernsey. needs to be looked at. <laughs> exactly, where you yeah. can prove that no trades had ever taken yeah. place. Obviously, um, you know, hindsight's a great thing, but right, you can try and keep tabs on things. So, I mean, perhaps what key fund attributes should investors check, let's say, um, just to try and see if a fund seems, you know, reasonably sensible, well run. I think performance is a key measure. So keep an eye on the performance, particularly in relation to the benchmark. So I think one of the issues with the Woodford Fund was that it moved so far away from the benchmark in terms of what it was investing in. So it was supposed to be a a blue chip, large cap focused equity income fund. And it moved quite strongly away from that towards much smaller companies, private companies that didn't pay any income whatsoever. So I think that perhaps should have been a red flag for some investors. Also, I think keep an eye on the level of outflows from the fund. Because if you do have a large fund and you have got a very high level of outflows, it becomes quite difficult to manage that. And it becomes quite difficult to generate a strong performance when investors are always trying to redeem large amounts from your fund. So I think performance and keeping an eye on the outflows from the fund. How actually can you get data on outflows? I mean, you can look at the size of the fund. So websites such as Mm. Morningstar will always show the size of the fund. Mm. And if you have got a significant fall in the size of the fund compared to the previous month or quarter, Mm. and that's not due to performance, then you can get an idea for the level of the outflows. Talking of that, all funds and all managers undergo temporary periods of underperformance. So how can you tell the difference between, you know, one of these um, that will probably correct itself in the near not too uh, distant future and, and more serious problems. Again, I think that's one of those things that probably is 
more obvious with hindsight. Again, I would keep an eye on the performance and see by just how much that fund is underperforming the benchmark. And I would also keep quite a close eye on the monthly or quarterly commentary that is coming out from that fund manager and just look at the reasons they've given for why that fund is underperforming. And if it does appear that they have moved away from the benchmark in quite a strong way, if they have moved into an asset class that they shouldn't really be investing in, then I think that should be a red flag for investors. That said, LF Woodford equity income was affected by a combination of very unusual circumstances. So is what happened to it really likely to happen to other open-ended funds? Because, for example, they by and large don't have exposure to unquoted investments, one exception being property funds. But let's say we're talking about equity funds, other open-ended equity funds available to UK private investors, they don't invest in unquoted. So should we actually worry about any of this? Perhaps we shouldn't be worried about it, but I think we should be mindful of it. I think the Woodford situation is quite unique because the fund was so large and so famous. So as the performance started to to deteriorate, I think that really caused such a high level of fund outflows and that became incredibly difficult to manage. I think it does raise the point that it doesn't make sense to have an open-ended fund with unquoted or illiquid assets. So I think investors should be steering clear of that in future. Okay. Now, something that does happen occasionally is when a very successful staff and manager leaves the established firm where he made his name and strikes out on his own. Obviously, that didn't work well in Woodford's case, so should investors categorically avoid following these managers when they do this. And I suppose a case in question at the moment is Alex Dahl, who's um, about to set up his own firm. I don't think investors should categorically do that at all. Um, I think if you are a fund manager with a particularly successful track record, it's probably a very natural thing to want to strike out on your own and start your own company. And I think it's important to realise that the first couple of years of Woodford running his own fund actually did go rather well. So the initial performance of Woodford Equity Income was very strong. And you've got other fund managers such as Terry Smith, to name one, who have done incredibly well after striking out on their own. So I definitely wouldn't categorically say that we should be ignoring all fund managers who who move to start their own company. Uh, David, what other developments follow the news that Elif Woodford Equity Income is going to be wound up? So yeah, plenty happening. We've already discussed on on Tuesday what happened with the decision to uh, to wind up. A bit later on Tuesday, things escalated again because Neil Woodford essentially uh, decided to, I guess, kind of wash his hands of it, and um, he um, he served notice on both the Patient Capital Trust um, that he runs the portfolio for, and on his smaller income focus fund. Okay, um, I mean, what's going to happen to these funds? There's a lot of uncertainty right now. First off, patient capital. The board was already looking at potentially going with alternative managers because of the issues Woodford's been um, dealing with. And now that he's served his notice, uh, there's a three-month notice period and they will essentially have to find a new manager. I guess the question is what they want that manager to do because on the one hand, they could simply decide, like with equity income, to you know sell things mm-hmm. off winds it up and then return that capital to investors, um, what's left. Or they could try and kind of make it their own, whoever this new investment manager is. And I imagine that would also be quite difficult because they'll probably try and remake the the portfolio Mm. according to their views and they'll have to kind of try and get rid of anything they don't want, which may be quite illiquid, quite tricky to shift. And uh, income focus. That has been suspended now for the same reasons that equity income was suspended. Link anticipated uh, high levels of investor redemptions. Thought that'd be quite difficult to uh, to manage. 
So while the fund is suspended, I mean, we're still going to get regular updates, but while it's suspended, Link wants to essentially decide what to do with the fund. So they could try and uh, hand it on to another investment manager. They could try perhaps to merge it into another product Mm -hmm. or like equity income, they could simply decide to sell off the assets, wind it up, return money to investors. Now, um, Woodward Patient Capital Trust is an investment trust, a a listed Mm. security. So over the past few days, since all these things have emerged, what's happened to its share price and discount to net asset value? The share price has struggled for a long time, but um, it's really come off this week on the the latest news. And uh, I think when I last checked, in terms of the premium slash discount, the trust was on nearly a 50% discount in (laughs) AVA. Yeah, that's extremely rare, isn't it? Okay. Um, Rachel, I mean, on that note, I suppose investors in uh, Woodford Patient Capital Trust could, if they wanted to, sell their shares in it. Should they do that at this point? Such a difficult question because we really Mm. don't know exactly what is going to happen with that trust. And so Davis has just mentioned this huge 50% discount. Mm. Sounds very attractive in theory. I think the difficulty is that we don't really know how accurate that discount is because we know that a lot of the investments within the trust have been written down several times. Mm. So if we believe that the last valuations for the assets in the trust are accurate, then yes, it's on a 50% discount. But I suppose there is a chance they could be written down further. And that means the discount might not quite be as big as 50%. I think within the trust, there are some incredibly attractive assets. But Mm. part of the issue is, what if those small companies need funding in the future? I don't think the trust is in a position to provide that funding. So it's just, we need someone Mm. else to come in, review the assets and just see what the future prospects for those companies are. Thank you, Rachel. Some really helpful points. As a UK-based investor, you're no doubt absorbed in that other long-running saga, Brexit and how and when this might happen. But on the global stage, there are far greater and more important things affecting world trade and equity markets, not least the US-China trade dispute. Dave, you've been looking at the ramifications of this ongoing dispute. What detrimental effects has it had on investments? So at least in the last year, um, you've seen any kind of noises around the trade war, whether things seem to be escalating or actually improving. That has been kind of moving equity markets up and down. Um, Among other things, of course, it's always difficult to tell exactly why people are buying or selling. But I think one detrimental effect for investors is um, it's just very hard to pick markets and uh, pick funds with that in mind because you you know you don't know what's going to be affected you don't know how vulnerable you are to that kind of trade war volatility i suppose you would want to avoid areas that look like you know we're going to be really badly affected and um, lose your money and it wouldn't be unfair to assume that the two geographies that are going to get hit the worst are the us and china Mm. but um what other less Obviously, it might be affected. Yeah, I, I suppose the, the biggest one would be uh, would be Europe. Partly for when you think about it, perhaps some some relatively obvious reasons. I suppose you've you've got the um, exporting business within Europe. You know, you think of German cars, that kind of thing. Um, but there are also other factors which make Europe exposed to any shifts in the US and, and China. One is just the effects this has on the global economy and on things like central um, central bank policy, monetary policy. Because if you have, as the ECB is doing, if you have kind of monetary easing, uh, low interest rates or even negative rates, um, that's really bad for banks. 
And, you know, banking still is a huge part of the kind of European economy. And what other problem might European equities face? Well, they may become, or you could argue they've already become, uh, the next target in uh, kind of Donald Trump's various disputes and and trade wars. You had an issue, a long-running issue, but um, there was a case over um, subsidies to Airbus. And essentially, this was a case between the US and Europe, and the World Trade um, Organization ruled in favor of the US saying that Europe had basically been doing illegal subsidies and that is going to result in uh, sanctions on Europe. So some people worry that this could basically signal a something that becomes much bigger, Donald Trump kind of targeting Europe and uh, carrying on a you know, more direct dispute with them. Now, what maybe unlikely way might you be able to mitigate against the effects of this? Yeah, this is quite a novel idea, perhaps, because um, Europe's very out of favour. There are a lot of worries about Europe um, beyond the trade war. But if you can find a good way to um, to play it, you could look at um, domestic European exposure, because I guess then you're kind of less, hopefully less vulnerable to those external forces. OK, and um, what funds could you invest in to get exposure to domestic-facing European companies? There's, there's a good handful. Um, one example would be um, Mighton European Opportunities. Uh, it's still a relatively new fund. It's about four years old now, but um, it's performed really well. It takes a very kind of bottom-up approach, focusing on kind of companies' fundamental merits rather than what's going out in the what's going on in the broader world. Um, the managers on their kind of commentaries often say, you know, we don't we don't bother with macro. And uh, yeah, it's just accessing lots of kind of interesting um, stories within Europe. I guess another option would be the Bearings Europe Select Trust. Um, So that focuses more on smaller companies, which, you know, are giving you more of that kind of domestic exposure. And uh, that's a fund that generally has done very well from from its approach. Um, Rachel, US-Europe trade tensions are at a far less advanced level than US-China trade tensions. So do investors actually need to be worried about them and and seek to protect their portfolios against any fallout? Again, I think it's something to be mindful of rather than perhaps being incredibly concerned about. Um, So as Dave alluded to, the World Trade Organization has given the US permission to impose tariffs on $7.5 billion worth of European exports. However, we're still awaiting the outcome of the case by Europe against the US aircraft manufacturer Boeing. And it's likely that next year, the WTO or the World Trade Organization will allow Europe to impose probably a similar level of tariffs on the US. So we've got a bit of a tit for tat situation going on there. And I think many analysts are hoping that that could be settled rather than having tariffs on both sides. That said, I think Donald Trump is particularly against the European car industry. Again, as Dave alluded to, I think he really dislikes the fact that a lot of Americans drive European cars instead of American cars. And he has hinted for quite some time now that he would like to impose tariffs on the European car industry. So if you are concerned or convinced that US-Europe trade tensions will escalate, is getting exposure to domestic-facing European companies a good way to mitigate against any possible fallout? Or how else could you protect your investments against this? It's certainly one way to mitigate a fallout. Um, So there are lots of very large domestically focused European companies that are trading on quite attractive valuations at the moment. So that's 
certainly one area to look. I think because we've got trade tensions going on in so many parts of the world now, I mean, US, Europe, China, that's covering basically all the large economies in the world. Normally, I would say you should uh, diversify more geographically to avoid a, a worrying situation in one area. But bearing in mind that we have tariffs almost everywhere now, it's quite difficult to find another country to invest in that is completely <laughs> exempt from tariffs. I suppose. I mean, it almost sounds like the new normal. So <laughs> was looking at the bigger picture, I mean, how detrimental is the larger uh, US-China trade dispute to global equity markets? And you know, if it's new normal, I mean, do you should you do anything about it? I think it's very difficult to say exactly how detrimental it is. We know it has impacted the stock market. Every time the tensions seem to worsen between the two countries, we do see the markets coming off. And even though the trade dispute has been going on for quite some time now, I think the negative impacts are only just starting to come through in some of the corporate results that we're seeing. Uh, so, for example, Philips, their healthcare company, announced results last week. And they said they've really suffered from the tariffs that have been imposed on some of their products. And they've also had to spend a lot of money moving some of their production around in order to avoid some of those tariffs. So I think we're starting to see it affecting corporates. And I think also this morning, in fact, Chinese GDP figures came out. And I think the growth was slightly below what people were hoping for. And I think that is largely due to this trade war between the US and China. So I think difficult to say exactly how much of an impact it's having, but we can certainly say it is having a negative impact that probably will get worse as time goes on. You mentioned that normally you'd say diversify geographically, but well, the wars is everywhere. I mean, is there anything you can do to protect your portfolio against fallout from, you know, these sort of like growing trade tensions across the world? Well, if you're that concerned, you could have some of your money in cash or in perhaps a safer asset, but on the other hand, it does feel as though we are moving closer towards some kind of partial trade deal. And I think that would be very good for the market. So last week, we did agree a, a very small, very partial trade deal between the US and China. I think probably a bit more could be done. I don't think we're going to have an all-encompassing trade deal that covers all the areas like intellectual property theft. But I think we could have a more comprehensive deal than what was agreed last week. And when that happens, I think it will be good for the market. And therefore, for those who are happy to take a bit of risk, I think perhaps it could be a mistake to be out of the market at the moment. But what some investors could do is perhaps look at slightly more defensive sectors, uh, say, for example, consumer staples, healthcare, because they tend to hold up reasonably well when trade issues are happening. Okay. And um, I mean, just picking up on that note, actually, if you're a long-term investor, should you, do you need, really need to worry about these short-term fluctuations? I mean, sure, there's trade escalations in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Is anybody really going to remember even? I mean, depends how much longer it lasts for. I think generally I would completely agree with you. The best thing to do is buy some great companies and hold them for the long term and try and overlook what's happening in the world of macroeconomics. I think possibly you could make a few tweaks to make yourself slightly less susceptible to any negative impacts of the trade war. So perhaps look at particular sectors or subsectors that have been particularly badly impacted. So for example, semiconductor manufacturers, they have been particularly susceptible to talks about the trade war. So perhaps that is a sector to reduce exposure to if you are particularly worried. But broadly speaking, I would agree with you and I would just buy great companies and continue to hold them. Okay, thank you, Rachel. Some really helpful tips. That brings us to the end of today's show, but also have a look at this week's Investors Chronicle or the website at www. 
investorschronicle.co.uk for Dave's full reports and the latest news on the former Woodford funds and see this week's big theme for how to manage your investments through escalating trade tensions. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.